everyone. Welcome to this episode of the 10K Media Podcast. Happy New Year. Today I have with me Peter Zavistovich, who is the head of marketing at Stack Blitz. We've worked together at Gremlin and uh, he's one of the best marketers out there. So hopefully this conversation is interesting and provides some value for anyone who's taken the time. Peter, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for that very kind intro. It's good to be here. Thanks for taking the time, man. It's been a while since we've worked together formally. And so I want to jump right into um, what I think is a, is a question that a lot of people struggle with, which is the PLG versus top-down stuff. Because at our time at Gremlin, you know, when I think back at it, in the beginning, you know, Gremlin was very good at brand. I think it still comes up in conversations I have with people, even though I haven't worked there for a few years now. Um, did really good at like targeting that end user persona, the SRE, but that didn't necessarily convert to revenue, right? And so then they had a more enterprise top-down approach. And that friction I've found is that a lot of companies, it's not unique to Gremlin, right? This bottom-up versus top-down right. problem. And so how do you think about it as a, as a marketer and as someone who probably has to balance both of those, right? Appealing to the end user, but also to the buyer and and how, how do you recommend companies navigate these conversations? Yeah, so definitely something that, you know, in, in the practitioner seat, I've had to balance myself, you know, whether it's at Stackbots Now or at Gremlin, like you mentioned, or even, you know, to a certain extent at MongoDB. And, you know, also something I helped a lot of folks think through um, when I was at Pace uh, as we were kind of helping bridge that gap a little bit. Um, but the first thing I'll say is, is there's a reason that people, you know, talk about how difficult it is. And I think, you know, one of the, the patterns I've seen a ton is if you're a more enterprise focused, more you know top-down driven company, and you want to sort of unlock that channel, um, I think what trips up a lot of folks is number one, it's going to take a while to get that motion going, and so in many cases you have to make an upfront investment that's not going to pay off for you know potentially months or you know longer than that. And you mean the PLG motion, just to clarify? Yeah, yeah, the PLG motion. So, you know, if you're used to saying, hey, if we spend X number of dollars on marketing, you know, three to six to nine months later, we're going to have an enterprise deal at the back of it. Um, you know, that's kind of in your DNA that you'll be able to, um, you know, go to your investors, go to your team and say, hey, these are the metrics we can commit to. Um, but in a lot of cases, starting a bottoms up motion, you don't have that visibility. You don't aren't able to project that out. Um, and the investments you have to make aren't just in marketing, they aren't just in sales, but they're primarily in product and, you know, um, design and, and UX and all of those types of things. And a lot of people just aren't used to, um, you know, number one, making that sort of delayed uh, investment and number two, working on, on those different areas. So there's a very good reason people talk about how difficult it is. Um, I think for the companies that have been successful, they've said, yes, we know that this is going to be a lot of work and then have invested the right time and resources into making it successful. Um, you know, I think there's there's many examples, I would potentially include Gremlin in this camp of kind of wanting to do both at the same time without really investing in, you know, both is, to the extent that they need to. Um, because, you know, if you if you kind of just do it as an afterthought, it's going to be an afterthought in terms of the results as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think a, a lot of the, what I'm saying too is that um, you know, I have a client right now, WingCloud, they just launched out of Stealth. It's a cool company. They're working on an open source project. 
Um, they got funding on an open source project. There's no revenue generating product at the moment. So it's totally bottom up, you know, just people using the open source, right. getting a lot of hype. Um, and it's like, how do you quantify that value, right? Of just a lot of people using it, interested in it, but it there's there's no revenue component. And then when you build a revenue component or you you, you need to start focusing on it, how do you balance both keeping the, the fire going on the bottom up, but also now having to, you know, maybe do more traditional sales and hire sales folks. And it's just kind of a different operation. And um, I think that it's very hard to do both at the same time, especially as a startup. And I think also the climate has changed where money is just flowing around, where if you just show you've got a lot of interest and you've got a lot of free users even and community members, like those metrics were very appealing to board members in a way that now maybe not as much. They just want to see that money is coming in. Did, did you feel that shift too? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, uh, as recently as a couple of years ago, obviously you could raise a lot of money on the back of having a, you know, giant Slack channel or a lot of signups or a lot of web traffic. Um, I, you know, I haven't been personally involved in, in trying to uh, fundraise in, in 2023, but um, from what I hear, that's not the case anymore. Um, so I think what you mentioned around four companies that have sort of this organic or, you know, built in um, bottoms up motion where they have a, a lot of top of funnel, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, a good portion of those, um, those folks in your community or your free users are actually monetizable. Um, and that could be for a number of reasons. Like number one is that you don't have a product that you can sell them. You know, maybe your your free version, your open source version is is all they need or or, or they want. Um, or the other thing is you just don't have the you know, the internal um, ability to sell to those folks. So if you have an enterprise sales team who's used to going into Coca Cola and you know selling to the CTO, they're probably going to crash and burn if you say, hey, now go and close a bunch of two thousand you know dollar deals a year or something like that. Um, so again, it, it comes back to like, what do you, what's your intention here? Like, what's your strategy? Do you want to go and build out a suite of products that, you know, maybe cost like five bucks a month for those free users where you can get some incremental revenue? Um, most small teams don't see a lot of value in that because the amount of transactions you'll have to do to get meaningful revenue, again, to, to satisfy your investors probably isn't there. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, that's also a totally viable strategy. So for example, at MongoDB, like, you know, massive open source adoption. And we had a lot of different iterations of like, what are the different price points that we want to try and monetize people? So obviously enterprise came first. That was like the, you know, multi-million dollar deals at the biggest companies in the world. Um, but there were a lot of, you know, attempts with mixed success of monetizing sort of the middle of the funnel. Those like SMBs who maybe would spend 40 bucks a month, but wouldn't spend a thousand. Um, so it, it comes down to, you know, what do you, what's your hypothesis? What are you going to commit to? Um, because you, you really do have to kind of pick a lane and experiment with it and, and see if it works. And, you know, maybe it won't. I mean, I think at Gremlin, you and I both recall that some of those attempts weren't successful. Like there wasn't necessarily a market for a free version of the product in the way that we had, a, you know, positioned and marketed it. Um, so that's fine. Then, you know, uh, for the sake of, prioritization and resources they they shifted towards what they knew which was you know the enterprise motion and and as far as i can tell that that's being uh you know well received yeah i struggle with that but i'm coming from a different angle because inherently with appealing to the enterprise you have to do some unappealing things 
you have to dull the gremlin teeth. You have to remove the chaos. You have to, and by unappealing, I really just mean like narratively. And, you know, there's like, you, you, you have to not be so controversial basically. Right. Which mm -hmm. like for a brand that's trying to make waves and make noise, I don't know, the more you dull those teeth, the, the harder it is to remain hype, but um, yeah, maybe the trade-off is worth it to, to to close some some bigger deals, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're pointing to is the risk profile of a customer you're selling to changes dramatically, whether it's like an individual developer, individual like, you know, power user to a, a giant enterprise. Um, yeah. I I like to think that, you know, you can, you can still sell to those risk-averse folks with out completely walking away from any personality or any creativity. Um, but I think you have to read the room as well. Like, you know, if, if your product is around security and your main value prop is reducing risk, like your brand has to also reinforce that. Um, yeah. If you're about, you know, sparking cre creativity and improving productivity and sort of that kind of thing, like I think your brand can speak to those a little bit more. So it really just depends on, on sort of what your customers are looking to get from you. Like, you know, you can't be saying, we're going to save you money and then um, have a brand that feels like incredibly uh, premium or frivolous, or I don't know, like I'm, I'm kind of spitballing here, but you, you know what I'm saying? Totally. Yeah. I, I was just talking to a potential client recently. Um, I won't, I won't name them, but they're, they're a fork of an open source project and they built some um, momentum around this free product that they basically created and it's getting a lot of users, but they're they're not converting anyone to their sort of mid-tier pay. So they're going just full enterprise and really like thinking they should shift their whole mental model. And I don't know, I, I think a lot of people are in this boat. And would you agree that if you have a lot of interest, maybe in the free and in the product you have, um, you should find a way to convert those people or at least some of them before you say, you know what, no one's, no one's converting. Let's just go full enterprise. Um, I think my personal bias is, yeah, let's, let's see how much we can do with the self-service um, bottoms up motion. Cause that's where my passion is. That's where, you know, the work that I like to do. Um, but at the end of the day, as long as we're clear where we're focusing um, and doing that, then, you know, I'll be happy. I think the the challenge is so many companies say, well, let's just try both. You know, let's let's mm. double down on enterprise, but let's also see what we can do with this, you know, bottoms up motion. And and that is like when people say it's it's difficult to do both, there's obviously sort of the the strategy and like segmentation stuff, but like really the killer is just prioritization and resource allocation. Um they both of those motions, tops uh, top down, bottoms up have fundamentally different, you know, um, blocking and tackling that they need. They have different areas of, of um, focus that they, they require, different tooling, different skill sets. And ultimately, you're, you're, you could end up, you know, paying double um, by refusing to pick a lane, yep. at least at first. Obviously, yep. there's a lot of, um, a lot of companies who are really now, um, focusing on how to harmonize those two motions. Like when they've got one up and running and it's it's paying the bills, they're thinking about, okay, how do we go up market? You know, if they have a, a great um, bottoms up motion or, or the opposite, which right. is we have a great enterprise motion and we want to see if we can unlock bottoms up. Right. Uh, that's a different thing. I think like for a, an earlier stage company who's still trying to figure out 
their their primary go-to-market motion, the thing I see is just like just you need to pick one and you need to focus on it until you're seeing repeatable results, repeatable results. Um, and then think about layering in something else. What do you think a good conversion looks like from a bottom up? I think that's another thing I've seen people not really know. Like, obviously, if you have, you know, a thousand free users and none of them want to convert to paying, that's a that's a problem. But is it 90-10? Is it more of a Pareto 80-20? Like, what, 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 what is sort of the sweet spot where you know it's working? I think everyone's accepted, right? That you, you'll very likely have free forever users, right? That, that, that that's just part of the game. But what, what's a healthy chunk in your experience that, that actually converts to paid? So I would definitely plug um, the Notorious PLG newsletter here. Um, I'm totally blanking on the author's name, but um, every week they include like conversion benchmarks in their newsletter, um, which is a great just sanity check for, for where you stand. But I think um, honestly, to me, this is similar to the question about like, how do you know when you have product market fit? And there's a lot of different attempts at answering that question. Some are quantitative, some are like, hey, you'll just feel it in your feel it in your bones. I think the answer is somewhere between those. Like you'll have repeatable metrics that respond to different, you know, inputs. Like if we change X, then we see a response. That's a good, that's a good indication that you have um, you know, healthy motion. Um, but then the other side of it is, you know, you just kind of can start to understand the traction in a bunch of other areas. Like other things start to feel easier. Um, so it's not a it's not a very scientific answer, but it, it's somewhere it's somewhere in there. That makes sense. Well, the the company you went to after our time together at Gremlin was PaceApp, right? They're they're still around. Yes. Yep. And they were trying to help with this problem a little bit, right? Like if you, from what I remember, specifically if you were more traditional sales but you wanted to get plg going or something like that it was some sort of like insight driven program to to help people do plg better if I, i'm sure you could pitch it better than this but but how were they approaching the problem you know so i would i would bundle pace in with a a class of companies that all popped up around the same time um sometimes they were put into like a product-led revenue category sometimes it was called like a, a plg crm but fundamentally, what Pace and a lot of these other companies were trying to do was when you have a large free tier or a large top of funnel and you don't have enough, you know, human capacity to speak to every single one of those people, um, how do you filter out, you know, the people who are never going to sell or never going to buy, excuse me, to the people who are like incredibly high potential, you need to, you know, drop everything you're doing and, and make sure that they have a good experience. So we kind of encountered a couple of different types of companies. There were the ones that were, you know, early stage companies have had a lot of like organic success and maybe the founders or their very small nascent go-to-market team is just having a hard time filtering through, you know, the folks that they should spend time on versus the folks that they should let um, self-serve. I would put uh, stacklets in that category, for example. So we have, you know, North of two million monthly active users, we have one person on our team who's doing, you know, sales effectively. So something that's very top of mind for him is, of these two million people, who should I be spending time on? Um, that looks a lot like kind of traditional lead scoring um, at first. But the second category of companies is, I think, what uh, the founders of Pace and a lot of these other companies really were thinking about uh, when they conceived the the idea, which is for a growth stage company where you have an existing sales function and they're used to maybe chasing MQLs or doing outbound prospecting, 
and then you add a self-service or a bottoms-up motion, how do you enable them to work kind of in the same way that they're used to, um, but also give a good product-led experience? That was the challenge that we had at MongoDB that I worked on pretty closely. And that was certainly the inspiration for, for Pace, uh, both of the founders being former MongoDB. Um, the reality is there's just not a lot of the, the companies out there that fit that description. Um, you know, there's maybe dozens to hundreds versus thousands. And the other thing is you can get pretty far with existing tooling, building it in your own. Um, so there's a lot of value in, in what we built at Pace and there's a lot of value of what, um, you know, some of these other companies built. But the reality is I think there's a challenge for for all of these companies to to really, you know, drive predictable large revenues or certainly VC scale revenues um, because the problem isn't, felt by a large number of companies. It's felt very acutely by a small number of companies. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, I've worked with Or Weiss, who was the uh, co-founder of uh, Rookout and now Permit.io, you know, a couple of times throughout uh, 10K Media. And I remember he wrote a thought leadership piece that got a bit of attention around why open core is dead as a as a business model like the basically the problem and i think it applies not just to open source but to freemium as well about you know if you give away too much of your core value for free or you open source it and then you know later you try to upsell to it to a you know uh, even if it's a a nominal swipe your credit card thing it's just it's just hard if so much of the core value is already given away and we've seen this recently with um um uh, Terraform, right? They they realized uh, HashiCorp, you know, the Terraform thing, they changed the license. And if I'm not mistaken, I think MongoDB had to do this at some point too. Um, but anyway, I, I'm curious, how do you think a company should go about, obviously the more value you give away, especially if you're early, the more adoption you'll get, but then later you may pay the price of not knowing which knobs to turn then to convert these people to, to free. You've sort of cannibalized your own markets um i don't know how, how do you navigate that yeah i mean this there's a lot there's a lot in this uh in this conversation right so um i mean i, I think first off some of the licensing changes on the open source companies were, were more around being undercut by you know the amazons of the world and saying hey we're, we're going to go and offer your open source product um you know at a, a lower cost or, or what have you um so if i remember correctly that was primarily the the motivation behind MongoDB's licensing change, I can't speak for for the others, but um, this point about uh, you know, if we're giving away too much for free, how are we going to be able to generate revenue? I think is certainly a, an objection that many a salesperson has raised, and in, in the you know the PLG era, and I think keeps a lot of early stage founders up at night too, because you know there's there's this idea that there's this golden balance between giving just enough away that you build a, a vibrant you know top of funnel and community, etc., but um, you still have enough uh, on the truck to to generate revenue. Um, unfortunately, there's there's not like a, a golden um, solution to this. It, it becomes, are you building compelling and interesting paid products? And I think what we've seen a lot, especially with like open court um, companies, is the best idea was their free product, and and they they failed to kind of build anything more interesting on top of that. A lot of it is just, hey, we can make this a little bit easier to to use. Maybe we can offer you some integrations with some tools that you uh, you already use. 
some of those are like checkbox things and people will buy those, but you're not going to get the same level of um, enthusiasm and loyalty <laughs> as your original products if you're not putting the same time and energy into, into developing your paid products. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a case to be made for if you, if you don't have like a, a strong product pitch for, you know, a, a premium version of your product, I think you should be thinking about that very carefully before you make the core product free and available to everyone. Mm. Um, so that's, if that's sort of, you're putting your best foot forward, that's your chance at monetization, then maybe you should think carefully about just giving that away for free. Mm. Um, having said that, I think in the, especially in like the dev tools and the infrastructure world, I think there's a general understanding that you need to have some sort of free or open source offering just to build, you know, developer trust and um, to drive some of that, that bottoms up adoption. So I think there where it feels like a much more of a requirement than a, than an option. Um, you know, it's tough, especially if you're not the the owners or the builders of the original open source product project. Um, so yeah, I mean, ag again, that's something MongoDB took a while to figure out. Um, we had several iter iterations of like a add-on type platform um, where people could pay for things like monitoring, backups, um, you know, that kind of thing that made managing MongoDB a little bit easier, but the, the core product was still the open source database. Right. It wasn't until Atlas came along that there was really product market fit for that segment. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, I guess that leads me to my next question. And I'm I'm trying to figure out how much of a, well, let me ask it this way. If you're finding that friction, conversions aren't happening, and I know it's hard to generalize this, but how much of that is maybe lack of product market fit or you or whatever? And how much of it can be maybe you don't have the marketing and the sales talent to convert? And how do you tell the difference between like it's a product problem versus a, a marketing or a sales problem? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think I think the other kind of killer of, of folks trying to do both motions at the same time is it's really easy to you know, see that your numbers aren't where they're supposed to be. And then I balance kind of what you're talking about, about like, hey, you know what, this isn't working. Let's cut our losses and pivot versus, well, if we just, you know, change this user experience or we added this, you know, um, step in the sales funnel or we did, you know, this different thing. Um, I think the important thing to, to think about in those conversations is sizing the expected impact of those changes. Like if you were seeing kind of middling results from just your early version, yes, you can juice those a little bit with you know thoughtful changes to the UX and things like that. But like it's it's unlikely that it's going to be transform you know transformational. Um, so it's that's a tough one. Like I don't think I have a good framework for saying like here's when you should you know cut and run versus here's where you should double down. Um, but I it can be a very slow you know slow death if you are just constantly trying to. Uh, um, you know, optimize something that's just fundamentally broken in the first place. Yeah. I think uh, one of the prerequisites for going into this is if you don't have enough top of funnel that you can't drive like enough volume through a PLG um, motion, that's going to be an uphill climb like uh, from the get-go because so much about um, optimizing a bottoms-up flow is 
testing and iterating. And if you just don't have enough at bats to see what's going to work and what's not, then that's, you know, that's going to be a real struggle. Mm. And you'll end up probably having a very high touch uh, sales process with those small number of folks anyway. So is that really beneficial? Not really, because then you're paying for all of the expenses involved with a bottoms up product and paying the, you know, sales and marketing expenses of having a high touch sale. So you're basically mm. doubling your acquisition costs for maybe a lower price. Yeah. Worst of both worlds situation a little yes. bit. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, the other kind of second part of that question is, and rhetorically i'll ask it is like how much of a unicorn are you but I, I won't make you respond to that but i i'll expand on what i mean by that just because in my experience you know you have marketers who understand the developer persona and they're good at storytelling and they're whatever but then they lack the um the technical execution and i i would say you know i've i've worked with a lot of startups now and i'd say you're you're one of the more technical marketers that i know and and not meeting technical like you're coding on the side or whatever, but I mean like conversions and funnel and tracking and data driven and that kind of stuff. And I, I see a lot of my clients really hungry for that kind of persona that know how to do demand gen, that know how to do MQLs, marketing qualified leads, that know how to really assist sales with with data. And um, I don't know, is it does it make sense that so many startups I work with are having a hard time finding this person or, or are they maybe just not not sure how to find that person um yeah that's a good question i mean i think one of the it's a valuable framework but i think it also can be a little limiting um you know the way that we or i think about hiring early stage marketers and it's a, something that's um been written about a ton is you know there's there's sort of three or four archetypes for an early stage marketer it's like you know are they really good at like brand and comms like yourself are they you know exceptional at product marketing which is where you might find someone who's technical in the sense that they understand the customer and, and their needs. And, you know, if it's a dev tool or something like that can really get in the weeds of like, how is this thing used and implemented? Um, then you have like the growth demand gen archetype, which is what I usually get kind of bucketed into, which is you can run campaigns, you can set up marketing automation, you can think about lead flow and conversions and things like that. Um, and the conventional wisdom is that you basically have to pick one. Um, and you know that someone's going to be good at one of those and not others um i think a new a more nuanced is like you basically can have skill sets in all of those categories and some people are really strong in one and no good in the others and some people genuinely are pretty good across the board um and i think one of the benefits of working in earlier stage companies for me and this is actually you know one of the main reasons i wanted to after my time at MongoDB is because I've had exposure to those different buckets firsthand and been on the hook for them. Um, I'll still say I'm no good at, at uh, you know, PR and comms, which is why I text you constantly. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's something that I've had to sort of learn by, by, um, by necessity. Um, I think if you hire from someone who's worked at a, a later stage company, they have by necessity specialized. So, um, it's really just kind of what you need at the time. But I think, um, you know, I think it can be limiting to think of folks as just imagine folks or just product marketing folks when they're, you know, there are people out there and I've, I've had the pleasure to work with, with several of them that are, you know, excellent across the board. Mm. Yeah, I think your point about startup experience where there's a lot of trial by fire versus, you know, hiring from a enterprise is, is important. And 
Um, I've seen this happen where a founder is not a marketer, but they're, they're pretty just naturally good at like understanding how to talk about the product and they're charming and whatever, like all of those like intangibles and the narrative is pretty good. And it's like, yeah, maybe the best thing is just to get a demand gen expert, you know, because a lot of the heavy lift of the narrative and the brand building, like you're, you're pretty naturally good at. But I, I think it's an interesting point that you've worked with some, but it seems like it, it probably is pretty hard to find someone who's like really solid in all of those. Because I, I think an expectation I'm seeing from my clients in the, you know, usually early stage is like, can we find this one person who just, you know, across the board can do all of these things? And it's probably a, a lot to ask if, if, you know, at least based on my experience. Um, I guess to wrap up, I wanted to talk about Stack Blitz because that's where you are now. So they raised around $8 million last year. Um, got some good angels, good investors, um, sort of like this on-demand dev environment, which seems pretty bottoms up. Um, how is that going? And are you seeing personally, you know, we were talking about earlier how just having a good community and free users or whatever isn't quite enough to like expect to raise again if you need to, as it once was. And are you, are you doing any of this debate with bottom up versus top down and maybe just a little bit about what the company's about in general too? Yeah. I mean, um, just kind of as, as a, a means of introductions for folks who aren't familiar with Stackblitz. Um, Stackblitz really cut its teeth in, in sort of the the way that, you know, these online code editors um, that have been around for, for a long time um, kind of grew up. So, you know, I'm sure everyone's familiar with like CodePen or something like that, where you're looking at code, it's it's kind of running in the browser. Um, when the world or the, the web was built with just sort of HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript, those worked really well. But um, something that was a, a huge, um, you know, unlock for Stackblitz is, is they figured out how to, you know, run some of these more complex, you know, frameworks and libraries, including things that are running server-side entirely within the browser tab. So it's a paradigm that we've seen with like Google Docs and Figma, where they're taking things that were previously running locally on your, your machine, and they're running it in the browser in a way that feels totally, you know, seamless, and you're not waiting for a crazy long network connection, or you're not like, you know, having your, your browser tab just hang there with you. Um, so that's incredibly valuable for the same reason that the code pen was, was valuable, right? But like now it's been expanded to, you know, developers who are using all sorts of more modern frameworks. Um, so just from a top of funnel sort of um, bottoms up adoption, adoption um, you know, there was, there was early uh, and strong product market fit there. Turns out that a lot of the, the reasons that people were using Sacklets for free are also, you know, very relevant to it for large enterprises. So, um, you know, Stackblitz's revenue model at the moment is taking what we do for those, you know, two plus million monthly users uh, on the web and making that available to, to large enterprises in a completely air-gapped, isolated way. So if you're a developer, like, you know, giant company, you can use sort of like your own internal Stackblitz and share things with your coworkers. You can um, use code that's pulling from, uh, you know, private repositories and uh, registries and things like that that aren't available to the public internet. Um, and it actually ends up being a lot more secure than downloading things locally or, you know, having to sort of get around, uh, you know, your centralized IT. Um, but, you know, allows developers to do their thing and, and try out new tools and uh, iterate quickly and things like that. So really strong product market, mar excuse me, really strong product market fit, but um, a rare case where the, the problems we're solving for 
your average developer on, on the web is also very, very relevant to, mm. to folks building, you know, for the web at, at the world's largest companies. So um, fortunately we've uh, sort of reached the early stages of finding, you know, product offerings that, that match those and then price points and things like that. Um, so now it's about just kind of growing that and, and scaling it up. So, so really the, exciting place to be. The, the appeal to both the bottom up and enterprise is not because you buck the trend of, of like, you know, because we were talking earlier about how you really kind of need to pick one at the early stage and, and really focus on it. Otherwise you end up doing kind of a half ass job at both, but so it's something about the product that's unlocking that sort of binary ability and and it's unique i think is what you're saying it's not every it's not common or there's no skill sets a team can bring to a product that unlocks that the product sort of has to fit that mold a bit 100% and and you know to my earlier comment about picking a lane first like i would say that the founders very much picked a lane back in sort of 2017 when they were starting on this project which was they wanted to go fully bottoms up you know, they they were able to see massive adoption um, without ever doing sort of like an enterprise deal. It didn't even have an enterprise product. Enterprise and top down came much later. So mm. for for Stack Blitz, it was you know bottoms up to begin with, and then enterprise is a newer, relatively speaking, motion uh, that we're now um, ramping up. That makes uh, sense. Fortunately for us, is the again the reasons that people would use Stack Blitz both in an enterprise or you know for a side project are, are very similar. Um, but there's obviously a lot more complexity to, to run enterprise deal, but, um, you know, there's also, uh, things that are easier about it as well. So I, I guess maybe to wrap up and to, to tie a bow on all this, because I'm not just with clients, but with friends, with, you know, companies that I don't work with, but who, you know, I talk to, um, you have 2 million plus users, you said, right. That that's, that's a strong community. Right. And I think to hear that it was like years of building that before even really getting into the enterprise stuff is, is good to hear. And I think it's valuable for people listening potentially to hear, because I think they'll do it for eight months and have, a, a you know, a thousand users and then immediately go, okay, now we need to go top down maybe, or how do we, and, and I think maybe because VC life isn't the same, these, these windows for, you having years of of building a community maybe those years don't exist a, as long anymore I, I don't know but it seems like for especially dev tools which is you know going to be most of the listeners here um you kind of do have to build that community and put in that give away that value for a while before you expect to then come over the top and 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 charge something I, my personal bias is, is yes, you do. Um, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, counterexamples, um, but that's kind of, you know, what I meant when I said that the, this bottoms up motion often, le often means delaying revenue for some period of time. Um, if, if, you know, stack blitz from day one was like, we're building this for the, you know, Goldman Sachs's of the world. Um, I think the outcome would be very different. Um, you know, having said that, we can't just rest on our laurels and say, hey, we've got all these users, you know, uh, we'll take another big VC check, please. Maybe we could have done that two years ago, but the reality is now we need to build, you know, a sustainable business. Um, you know, the, uh, the I think the interesting thing about what you're saying is like a lot of companies who are coming to you and, and, and expressing this, they're sort of doing it midstream where it's like, hey, we've, we've got pieces of this, yep. um, but, 
we don't know, you know, how to how to kind of take it to the next level. I yes. mean, I think one major unlock that happened for Stockwitz, which was far, you know, before my time, um, and and you know, credit to the early team is they were able to find really powerful distribution channels through partnering with open source projects. So for example, um, if you go to the Angular documentation, most examples in that Angular documentation, which by the way is used by millions of developers every month, links back to Stackblitz. And um, that was just a massive you know, uh, amplification mechanism in the early, early days and gave us a lot of credibility because, hey, you know, Google basically is, is um, uh, saying that this is what they use and again, not at all monetizable, but it was a huge distribution channel for us. They've gone ahead and actually built um, the next generation of their documentation on our underlying technology called web containers. So again, they're making a huge bet on things that we've built. And again, that's going to be a huge uh, distribution channel for us. I think if you're an early stage company and you haven't found that way to get in front of a large population, again, that PLG motion is going to be a slog. Uh, because you just need so much volume to make that viable. What do you think community's role is is in this? Because, and, and not just like the Stackblitz community or any particular vendor community, but actually like a community team within a company, whether that's DevRel or or whatever. Like how do you, because I know at Gremlin we did this, right? I mean, marketing and, and community were separate teams that that worked with one another. Um, does Stackblitz, do you do you run community too as a marketing organization or is there a separate motion for that? And how do those two things play off one another? Yeah, so I was really fortunate to to join a team that had a pretty you know thriving uh, developer relations and community function. Um, and, you know, I really see them as just sort of taking care of our, our users no matter who they are. So whether they're a part of an enterprise who's paying us, you know, millions of dollars a year versus someone who's using us for free. Again, because our value props are so... Um, sort of consistent across those segments. If someone is coming into our uh, Discord and saying, hey, I'm, I'm having trouble figuring this thing out or if there's something broken, like that's gonna be relevant to all of our customers regardless of you know their LTV. So you know they're really kind of the front lines of us identifying where people are running into issues, having friction, and ultimately if they're feeding back that, uh, feeding that back into our product organization, like the product gets better for everybody. So you know, for us, it's very much like a critical part of our product development um, function versus just like a nice to have a thing that we do, you know, to keep people happy in a, in a discord server. Mm. Do you, do you, is it unhealthy to view that as pipeline community members or like, cause I think that at least maybe earlier, all these lines are blurring, I think, but back a few years ago, the whole point of DevRel was like, no, we're the pure thing, right? We have no sales, obligations we have no that's not what we do at all um but i mean i think the reality is you know you have millions of people in a community you you hope some of them you know use your product eventually pay how do you think about that is it totally separation of church and state or is there some relationship there um i have a lot of empathy for the the devrel folks who have been you know sort of the the content producing function of a marketing team and why they would be like, look, you know, our success measure is developer experience, you know, customer satisfaction, user satisfaction. That makes a lot of sense to me because it unlocks them to do things that maybe don't have an immediate ROI. And I think that's, that's so critical. Um, I think the idea that things have to be 
segmented in a way that they can't help um you know the company with sort of revenue uh objectives i've not run into folks who've expressed it that way but it, you know i i've heard um that that does become a challenge like i think that's that's a, a red flag especially at an early you know early stage company like at the end of the day we're all pushing for the same outcomes and the way that devrel is able to help us achieve those outcomes looks very different from what sales and marketing is doing but ultimately we're trying to do the same thing i think where i've seen friction come up between these teams in the same way that it comes up between sales and marketing, right? Is like sales has a, uh, a set of skills and tools at their disposal to, you know, produce revenue. Sometimes they're the best tool for the job. Marketing has a whole other set. Sometimes our tools are the best for the job. You know, an example here would be like, if we needed to, um, alert our customers that we're going to have some like scheduled downtime for, for maintenance. You could literally have a salesperson pick up the phone and call every single person. You could have marketing blast out an email. You could have DevRel post a tweet or a blog. The answer is probably you should do all of those things. But the thing is you have to match the tactics and the team to the, uh, the end user, right? Like if you have a fortune 100 customer who is 20% of your revenue, you should be picking up the phone and calling that person that there's going to be some downtime. Like they need a different treatment and a different handling than your customer who's paying you 20 bucks a month. Likewise, you can't um, email people who are using your product for free if you're not collecting that information. So you have to communicate to them in some other form or you know via the product. So I think the the friction comes is when each team sees their tool set as like the best for solving a problem or they're being asked to do something there where their skills and tools that doesn't match, you know, the problem that we're trying to solve. Yeah. A lot of good insights here. Uh, appreciate your time for folks who are, you know, interested in, in stack blitz, where, where can they, you know, follow along? Yeah, definitely check out stackblitz.com. Um, you know, if you're in, uh, you know, the go to market field, um, we're actually going to be opening some, some roles on the team very shortly. So, yeah, give me a follow on LinkedIn, shoot me a DM. Um, and then yeah, watch uh, stackblitz.com um, if you're interested. Very good. Well, Peter, always good catching up. Hope to uh, see you in soon person. And uh, for everyone listening, thank you if you've made it this far. This is the 10K Media Podcast. Until next time.